Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I am Craig Pickett. Hey, today I am pleased to be here with uh, Christer Ungerbach, the world's first leadership archaeologist. Christer is a, uh, an award-winning CEO, keynote speaker and CEO coach, and uh, during his uh, tenure as company owner, leader, founder, um, he grew his uh, software company by 3,000%, uh, has employees in eight different countries, and is now one of the largest family-owned software companies in the world. Uh, an expert on employee engagement and global business growth, Christer has done business in 40 countries, built businesses in six of them, and lived in three, winning five consecutive top workplace awards along the way. His upcoming book is called Leadership Archaeologist, Tools to Unearth Unseen Potential. Hey, Christer. How are you? I'm great, Craig. After long last and hurricanes in between, uh, we finally get an opportunity to chat. So tell me, what what exactly is a leadership archaeologist? That's a uh, that's a great um, that's a great title for yourself. Tell us yeah. tell us what you're doing. Tell us what you're doing. Well, a leadership archaeologist is about digging deeper uh, and digging in areas outside of the traditional kind of business press and leadership training. And it kind of goes back to a story. Um, I was a CEO of a company that grew 3,000% from a handful of people in St. Louis to hundreds of people worldwide. And at the end, when I exited that company and retired, I had a difficult moment uh, where I realized that I had done all this reading about business leadership and we had created, you know, a successful company, global company. Um, and yet I hadn't really learned anything about what I call inspiring followership. And so I went on a journey digging in kind of, you know, uh, I, I call it uncharted leadership lands, uh, looking for the secrets to inspiring followership. Um, and, and, and I say that the business leadership clearly got us. Um, the blocking and tackling of building growth plans and recruiting a team clearly got us to a successful business. But I look back with some degree of uh, wonder of what would we have been? Like if we grew 3,000% just with good leadership, what would we have been if I had been able to really, what I say, inspire followership, which is a really different type of leading people on a day-to-day -day basis? And so that's kind of what I do as a leadership archaeologist is I find myself in strange places. Um, I can tell you a story. What, what, I'm doing these things every couple of months. Most recently, I found myself in New York City sitting across the table from a heavily tatted, very muscular man talking about his feelings, uh, specifically his feelings about being released from maximum security prison after 20 years uh, being convicted of murder in his teens. Uh, and he talked about the, the communication techniques that we were there to learn, how they transformed his life. 
And the reason I was there is because I had separately learned that those same communication techniques were the techniques that Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella used to transform Microsoft when he became CEO in 2014. So that's kind of an example of how I connect dots from going places where most business people, you know, as you can imagine, there weren't many business people in that audience. And I'm looking for kind of unique leadership secrets um, that maybe people haven't, uh, haven't discovered already. So when you, you talk about followership, you know, followership in the same sentence as leadership. That's interesting because the only, the only place I've ever heard really that before or even that, um, that path is the Marines. You know, the Marines develop leaders and they develop great followers who can step up to leaders. Um, hmm. is, that, is that a lot of what you're, what you're you know, developing? What I see it as is, uh, I, I say, you can be a leader without inspiring followership, but you can't inspire followership without being a leader. So it's, it's really, a, if you think of servant leadership, uh, I can say that I'm a servant leader. And I think that when I was CEO of the, the software company that, that we ran, um, I, I would have said that I was a servant leader. Many of my people would have said as well, but it's a different higher bar because to say that I inspired followership because it's really the people I lead's choice whether they choose to follow me, right? And right. it really, the, the concept started in 2004. It's kind of haunted me. I didn't have the words for it at the time, but we were going to acquire one of our competitors in Germany uh, out of bankruptcy. And I was interviewing one of the top employees. Um, we were kind of deciding, are we just going to hire their best people and not worry about acquiring their assets or, um, or actually acquire the company? And she told me about how she had, you know, she was still working there and passionate about working there. And she had, uh, was afraid of losing her house because they'd missed her paycheck for the third time. And it really s- sat with me. And I said, I don't know, would my best employees you know, the ones that really could find a job within a week's notice if they really wanted to, would my best employees continue to follow me if they didn't get paid, if I missed a paycheck? Right. Uh, unfortunately, we never missed a paycheck, but that was just a completely different bar of leadership. Um, and that's what I've really mostly been searching for these last two or three years since I retired uh, as CEO from the, the software company we built. So, how you, so in, in your travels, and uh, here's, a, here's a pretty broad question for you, in, in your travels and speaking to a lot of different companies and, and people out there, how are we doing? How, how are we doing developing the right leadership skills and the right you know, followership skills and inspirational skills to, to, to continue this growth path that we're, we're on as a country? I think the, well, I think it's difficult. The difficulty with developing leaders, what I found uh, was that there's a lot of general books and leadership training out there about leadership. But what I I found in my own path growing from leading a team of 15 people to 250 is that the skills, the behaviors that make us successful leading a team of five to 10 are often the opposite behaviors that make us successful leading a team of 30, 50, 100, and beyond. So it's almost like a a significant shift in the behaviors. Um, And so one of the things I did develop that I'll actually make available to to your listeners for free um, is a leadership assessment that focuses more on the behaviors and also by leadership level. So what are the behaviors that make a successful leader of five versus 30 
versus a vice president of a functional area. Uh, it was actually, uh, there was you know, a little known book by a Harvard professor in the late 1990s. Uh, and it was, it was written originally for kind of big Fortune 500 companies. Uh, and I took his framework for the different levels of leadership and really adapted it to smaller companies of, call it 15 to 500 employees. Um, to give more prescriptive guidance on what makes a good leader at each level. Uh, the other thing I find it challenging in smaller growth companies, and when I say smaller, meaning companies under 100 employees, is that there are different skill sets to, if I'm the vice president, call it what I call a functional leader and what Ram Charan called a functional leader, let's look at the vice president of sales, vice president of finance, typically the people who report to a CEO, there's a different skill set that that leadership role takes versus leading a team of 30. And sometimes leaders, especially in fast growing companies, have to learn multiple skill sets at once right. um, to confound matters. Often the CEOs of founder-led companies, and I, and I was in this situation myself, haven't mastered many of those skills themselves. So there's, there's essentially kind of this blind leading the blind um, thing that's going on. And, and again, I'm speaking from personal experience. I was the blind CEO who was kind of leading others to try to develop these leadership skills uh, while I was still trying to learn them myself. And so I think that especially in growth companies, it's just difficult um, without some kind of framework for for how we're going to build our leaders um, that's more behavioral rather than uh, a lot of the leadership things I've read are kind of get more philosophical. What do you think the biggest skills, you know, where do you, what are the most important skills someone has if they want to get to that point where they're, you know, they're a general manager leading a hundred person, 200 person team, you know, where do they need to develop the most? Is it their, 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 their emotional intelligence? Is it their communication skills? Is it, just the way they you know, present themselves in front of the group. What um, all the I believe, I, I believe that the two areas that I found most challenging was was shit was one, um, and I I would say in communication specifically around questioning, uh, asking questions versus telling, uh, and then the, the second we can talk about later is around emotional intelligence. But the the in the first area, um, what one of the things I realized is that. Uh, questions lead and answers follow. And what makes a really successful, you know, I ask myself, am I, am I questioning, leading with questions, or am I leading with my answers, meaning the solutions I'm giving my people? And what makes a really successful leader of a 10-person team or 10-person company is being great at having all the answers. And I was a software engineer and still even when we were a 200-person company, I still led with, you know, providing great answers, um, you know, probably more frequently than I could have. But what I found is that really shifting to asking the right kinds of questions and, and also not asking questions that just lead people to my solution. It's asking questions that lead them to their solutions uh, was really the skill that, uh, that I found is really the, 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 the difference. Because I, as a good, if a good leader, especially a good who's got you know an engineer or somebody who knows the product and selling and you know which is typical of a founder or a, someone who's grown up within a company that's a growing company, uh, I know all of the answers, uh, at least the answers that they were you know three to five years ago. Um, but and and I can carry a team of five or ten people on my back, but I can't carry a team of fifty. Uh, so I have to shift and develop strong ability 
to ask questions that lead people to their own answers um, rather than, you know, them just forming a line outside of my office or in my email inbox waiting for me to answer all of their questions and give them direction. Right. So you're, you're kind of out there, you know, it's, it's uh, as I like to talk to people, um, the open-ended question is a very powerful mm-hmm. tool. It makes people squirm a little bit and give you the answer to which, you know, can be compared to other people with whom you ask the same, the same question. I think it's kind yeah. of a, a little bit of, hey, what do you think? And helping them develop the conclusions that need to be developed versus you giving it to them. Yeah. And that, that was, so I, in probably my last three or four years as CEO, I, I really kind of worked on my question and answer, asking skills. And it was interesting. It wasn't until I went back and uh, I, I had the fortunate opportunity in 2001 to move to Europe and build our European offices and learn French and German as an adult. And it was when I actually crossed some of the, the, the conscious effort of learning a foreign language as an adult with trying to develop, ask better questions in, in French, German, and in English that I really started to kind of get a sense of what I was doing wrong. And, and I think that I take kind of a, almost like a linguist's approach uh, to how to ask better questions. So a good one example, a simple example that I include in my book is if you ask a question that begins with the word how or what, it is nearly impossible to ask an open, uh, ask a closed-ended question if you start your questions with how or what. So I try to break these things down to concrete, you know, very simple, memorable, actionable steps of how to actually ask better questions. That's uh, that's interesting. It, it, there's you know, just the statistics are out there. If you're talking, you're not listening. And yeah, it's hard to learn anything when you're, when you're talking. What's the, uh, you, you talked about in your book, the 10 day talking diet. What is, just go into a little bit more on that. That's, that's a, uh, I, I think that's a great um, analogy there. It's like, let, yeah. let's just, let's just stop. So I, it started with, uh, as a leadership archaeologist, I kind of exposed myself to these, uh, you know, sometimes random uh, or unique leadership experiences, other times just personal experiences. I decided to do a, a five-day fast, uh, and it was actually a silent, fi- silent five-day fast about, you know, I don't know, it was right before Thanksgiving, right after Thanksgiving, about a year and a half ago. And what I found, the point was, uh, so the the day before I started the fast was, you know, we did Thanksgiving dinner and I was starving. I had had I had eaten like three hours before, but I was starving, waiting, you know, smelling the, the food come out. And then three days later, I hadn't eaten anything and I was actually less hungry over this entire three to five day period than I was having eaten, you know, only three hours before Thanksgiving dinner. So the point was, is if I decide to cut everything out, um, then I start to come to different realizations and maybe question my assumptions in this case about food. And this was my thought. Obviously, I was going through this silent uh, retreat at the same time. And so, this is what uh, maybe I came up with the idea of, let's, let's, what if we had a talking diet, which was just a day-by-day challenges for leaders of very concrete things to say, today, I want you to only ask questions that start with the word what or how. 
Uh, and so each day is a specific challenge that a leader can enlist the people around them to hold them accountable and then kind of make it a little bit fun um, of how to approach communication to, as a leader differently. And then at the end of 10 days, kind of evaluate what worked, what didn't, and what would you like to continue? What would you like not to? Um, so that's kind of how the 10-day talking diet was born. How did it work? When you, when you tried it on your own people, did it make them uncomfortable at first or were they cool with it or what? Uh, well, I think it's, import, it's important to introduce it as an experiment. Um, otherwise, yeah, I'm certainly, I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was one of those CEOs who was not, uh, uh, not alone in that I go to off to a, a leadership workshop and then come back with a bunch of ideas and all of my teams as, you know, this too shall pass. Uh, so it's important to introduce it to the team and say, hey, we're just going to try this out and, and get their feedback on on what works. So what I found is in doing that um, that kind of approach that different people will react differently to some of the, They'll probably think it's a certainly a change of pace. Um, and, and some of these things, like anything, uh, it's like riding a bike. You know, it's going to feel uncomfortable at first and you have to choose which things you're going to kind of carry forward. Um, but, but the other part that is really, I think that I get a lot of feedback about is that the talking diet is not just about communication that you can do at work. Uh, these things apply equally well with our children, with our spouses, uh, and so outside of work. So it's not, uh, it's not just a one dimensional tool. Yeah, no, I got you. What, uh, what did you find? You know, uh, a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs, and they want to own their own company and they think that the end all be all in, the, in life is owning your own company. What did you find the biggest challenge was from the time you started until the time that you transitioned away from it somewhat? I think that the, I think the biggest challenge is probably, especially in uh, being the, is really setting our own ego aside. Um, you know, there's something about being especially a founding founder that, uh, you know, the financial performance of our company is so closely tied to our own view of our own performance um, because we don't, you know, there is no, you know, there aren't external investors typically, or, well, depending on what, you know, basically the buck stops there. Um, and so, and then this is, I'm not just talking about my own personal experience, but other entrepreneurs that I've worked with and, and I'm friends with is we, especially if we're successful and we get to 30 or 50 employees or more, uh, we kind of double down on what made us successful, uh, which is again, coming back to the initial point is often it's giving everyone the solution. Uh, and so in order to break through that 50 employee barrier, uh, it really requires changing our leadership style pretty significantly. And that was really uncomfortable. Um, I, I went through myself and I know many of other CEOs that when they started bringing in the really capable executives to get from 50 to hundred or 200 people go through a bit of an identity crisis. Um, I, there was certainly some period of months where I came in after I hired some of the really capable executives who could run, you know, half the company. Um, I, I, I kind of came in certain days wondering, so what is my job now? Because I don't have that line of people outside of my door, um, you know, waiting to get their questions answered. And so I think that that's probably one of the most difficult things for me was really kind of refining my purpose as a CEO of a larger, more successful company. 
And then, uh, and I think the other part of it was recognizing that, uh, and this was kind of my own um, philosophy is that if our company is growing, you know, let's say 20% per year, like my company was, then that means that the kind of leader I need to be, if, if I'm growing 20, 25% a year, then my company is going to double every three years in size. Right. And that means I need to be a completely different leader three years from now. So how am I, what am I doing to make sure that I'm the leader that my company needs? Um, I believe that my role as CEO is I have a fiduciary duty to our employees and the people that I've committed to create great careers for. And if I'm not the right leader of my own company, then it's time for me to step down. So, um, you know, how, how do I invested a huge amount of time in my own leadership development because I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want to be the CEO who had to you know, fire myself, uh, in order to, in order to make sure that I'm fulfilling the duty that I have to my employees and customers. Did you find that, you know, you know, to grow your company, you have to hire incredibly smart people and everybody, you know, everybody's looking for the person that's really, you know, you, you hire smart people that are smarter than you and you learn from them. Did you find that to be an intimidating exercise? You, know, you hire these really smart people and you're like, whoa, they really are smarter than me. Uh, did, that can be intimidating. Yeah, I think that, um, yes, it was. I mean, I, I was fortunate to have a number of people. Um, I guess, it, let's say it makes it a little bit easier when you look at it as, um, one, they're smarter than me in certain dimensions. Um, you know, there are other aspects that I bring other things to the table. Uh, but also, at the end of the day, you know, the job of a leader is to build the team. And so I took some solace in the fact that many of the people that I brought into my organization, I mean, these are not individuals who are even accepting calls from recruiters. Um, I was able to, they, they were the kind of individuals who are probably more interviewing me as CEO than I was interviewing them. Uh, so uh, my what, what uh, let's say, my role as a leader was to create an environment and to be the kind of leader that they want to follow. And, and so in that respect, um, I think that that was, uh, that was a big aspect of, of what made us successful in attracting those people. Uh, but then the other side of it is, you know, as you mentioned, is um, there were certainly days, like the guy who's, uh, who I hired who's running my company today, um, there were certainly days when he came in, I was like, wow, he would be a better CEO than I am uh, some days. And I, and I think that that's a great thing. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I was able to, to walk away from my company in fairly short notice and hand it off to a team I'd built. And, and they've been able to take it to new heights. I continue to be an owner and the company is going exceptionally well. So um, that's, uh, that's one of the benefits of hiring people that are you know, more capable than we are as CEOs. How do you keep that trust factor between the, the person you brought in to, to run your company and yourself? And how do you guys keep the, the lines of communication open so that you know, you've got good dialogues and, and, and that, that rapport is always good? I think that, um, well, my experience with hiring executives and uh, is and I characterize an executive in my terminology as somebody who could run a 50-person business unit or, you know, half of my business if I'm a 100-person company. Um, and I found that those individuals are wired differently than somebody who can run a team. You know, it's kind of like a middle manager, director mentality. Um, and what I found is that 
uh, well, there was a book by Daniel Pink called Drive a number of years ago. And he said that once people um, reach a certain income level, they're motivated by mastery, purpose, and autonomy. So, I first I built a company that had a kind of a vision statement that was purpose driven. Um, but then most of those executives, the top level people, uh, they're already masters in their craft. They're just looking at getting better. Mm -hmm. But what I have as currency, what they always wanted more than anything is how much autonomy am I going to have to kind of make my area of the company my own and kind of achieve. So that was really being able to establish written boundaries of authority. Um, typically in companies, in well-governed companies that have external investors, the CEO has uh, oh, it's called typically a table of authorities, which says the CEO is able to make decisions up to this financial impact without board approval. Mm -hmm. So what I've found is one of the best practices is to have a similar thing between top executives where you know, you're able to hire individuals up to a base salary of $100,000, but you need to consult me first or you can do it without my approval. Um, you know, and laying out those things specifically of what levels of autonomy someone has uh, so that also when people are performing, then you can come back and you can say, hey, I'm going to give you an authority raise. So we're actually going to allow you to um, you know, hire people up to 125000 without my approval or make these kinds of business process-oriented changes without approval. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the other aspect of an authority raise is just reducing the frequency at which people need to report back. Uh, if I have a new executive, I may want them reporting back to me once a month or once a week. Uh, but if they're performing over a period of years, then I may say, hey, we can treat this almost like a board meeting and you just report back to me once per quarter on your financial performance. Right. I got you. So, you know, it, it's clearly defined boundaries, but ultimately yes. it's clearly defined boundaries, you know, which keep it going. But at the end of the day, you're giving, the, you're giving your CEO or your, your executive a lot of rope. And I think the boundaries come on two sides. One, here's the authority of what you have to do. And I just had, a, I was talking to a COO of a large uh, 1500 person company who's a friend of mine. And we talked about also having boundaries the other way. Uh, so saying, hey, if you're not performing in these areas, let's say if your budget is to grow 8% and you're less than 7%, I'm also going to agree with you that this is the case in which I'm going to start micromanaging you a bit more because you're, you're not, you're falling short, but documenting that and saying this is, you know, it may be, I'm going to get involved in all clients that are over a million dollars in sales. So now I'm creating almost like a checklist of, you know, giving myself license of when I'm going to get into, let's say, micromanagement mode. Um, and you as an executive know when that's going to happen. As long as you keep your performance from going over those boundaries, then you don't want to be micromanaged and I don't want to micromanage you either. So, but we know when that's going to happen. Did you, uh, your peers around, you're based in St. Louis and, and your, your, your peers in St. Louis that are also entrepreneurs, how much do you communicate with them? You know, a, a lot of, a lot of success comes from who you associate yourself with. How yeah. Much, how much do they help you? I've been a, I, I joined the Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a nonprofit organization of CEOs who run businesses over a million dollars in sales. I joined about 12 years ago. And then that was really, that was probably the first thing that was one of the most powerful impacts in my own leadership development. And then about six or seven years ago, there's a sister organization called Young Presidents Organization, which is 
CEOs of, I think, $12 million in revenue or higher. And so I've, I've been a member of that now both organizations for some time. So th- that's really where I connect uh, and I facilitate peer groups uh, who with under the, under the, under those organizations to kind of get the peer group started. Um, so I, I get a lot of experience or uh, exposure to, I don't know, anywhere from 20 to 30 CEOs a month and what their, uh, you know, what their challenges are. And then that's, that's helpful for me. Does there, um, you know, does, uh, does the lone wolf, the person who tries to go alone, does he really stand a chance or is that, is that a myth? I don't, I, you know, I think that, yeah, the, the, what is it? Uh, Groucho Marx said, uh, we learn from the mistakes of others cause we only have so much, you know, we only have one, you know, we, we, we can't make them all ourselves or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I don't I, I was probably more of that lone wolf mentality before I joined EO, and then I realized that um, often just the different perspectives that people bring uh, give me better answers than me trying to recreate the wheel myself uh, and all these things. So yeah, I, I think the lone wolf who doesn't look to either external coaching or peer groups uh, is is most is going to be fairly limited in uh, in their success. You know, some some people get that external coaching from their like investors or whatever. If they have angel investors, they may have mentors in that regard. So there are other avenues for getting that. Yeah, the the crazy thing to me is I don't see a lot of companies investing in a lot of coaching. I, you know, GE, you know, with their Crotonville facility, you know, they uh, probably the best example in the world of a company investing in its people. But I, yeah. I look at a lot of 50, 100, 150,000 people, companies, and I ask them, do you, do you invest in sales training? No. Maybe a once-a-year event. Do you invest in executive coaching? Well, no, not really. Does it somewhat shock you that, that, no, that you know, coaching seems to be more of a cost than an investment? Yeah, and it, well, I, I, I use CEO coaches when I was a CEO in large part because I didn't want to become out. I didn't want to be the leader who was outgrown by my own company. Um, but at one of the CEO coaches uh, that I hired, he, I asked him, so what's your rate? And he said, well, I charge about $2,000 an hour, which I proceeded to almost fall off my chair. I said, how could you possibly justify your time being worth $2,000 an hour? And he said, well, Christopher, how big of a company do you run? And I told him, and what growth rate are you going? He said, well, you're creating, you know, you're creating like $10 million in shareholder value a year. So how much is your time worth per hour? And I kind of ran the numbers. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, he said, it's not my time that's worth $2,000 an hour. It's your time that's worth two or three or four or $5,000 an hour if you're creating that kind of shareholder value. And so what I found from the coaches that I worked with, one, I typically only worked with coaches who had been CEOs of companies because um, I wanted people who had truly walked in my own shoes um, and not just, um, I did have a couple of coaches who were not CEOs and where I found they provided value is they were kind of like uh, curators of great resources. So um, in fact, actually the book that I mentioned at the beginning, the Harvard book uh, was by one of my CEO coaches. He said, you know, I tell him the challenge that I'm having with growing some leaders within my company. He said, Hey, read this book don't take your time reading the whole book, just read chapters one, three, five, and seven, or whatever it was, because he's kind of pointing me to the, you know, direct line to what I need of which resource to solve my specific problem at that time. So, I I think that that's, um, 
the CEO coaching or coaching in general is I, I see increasingly people are opening up to the idea. Um, but you know, it's, it, it, people have to be willing to change their behaviors and learn from others. Um, unfortunately, I think it's probably generally speaking, once you get a CEO who's probably in their late forties or early fifties and beyond my general sense is that that's when people stop, um, stop looking to others to necessarily learn unless they've already had a pre 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 exposure to, you know, organizations like EO or Vistage or YPO. Sure. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Um, you know, I had one coach tell me, you know, artificial intelligence is the wave of the, is the way, you know, is, is the wave of the future. <laughs> incredibly smart people will always be incredibly smart. But how, how, how much importance do you put on EQ, emotional intelligence? Yeah, I think, well, I, I, EQ is probably the area that I failed most as a leader. Um, and, uh, and it's the area that I've spent the most time really working on since I retired. Um, I was, uh, I had a bit of a wake up call in 2007 or so, uh, where I did an anonymous 360 survey of about 20 to 25 of my employees who had worked with me closely. And I thought I was going to get great results. And uh, when I got my results back, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. In fact, actually one of the, uh, one of the strengths that one of my employees said is that I was young, uh, which I was immediately said, well, that's great. I can, I'm outgrowing that one. So what am I going to do when I'm no longer young? Um, but, but, but what they were pointing out to is that, uh, you know, I was the leader who had all the answers and I was highly critical and, um, and, and I didn't really realize how uh, hard my people took some of my words and some of my criticism, which, which I thought was just being kind of constructive, helping them improve. Um, and so one of, my, uh, one of the most important things that I've been working on is, as a leadership archaeologist is really, you know, I'd read all these books about emotional intelligence since Daniel Goleman and, you know, uh, emotional intelligence 2.0 came out, you know, five or six years ago, but still I didn't, uh, I didn't have great emotional intelligence. And so how, how do you improve your emotional intelligence if, uh, if, if I've read all these books and it's not changing? And so I, I developed a framework uh, that, that I followed um, that I've included in my book that's coming out. And it starts with developing, first you can test your EQ. So there are a couple of assessments that you can use to get a baseline of what your EQ is and what areas that you need to work on. Um, and then what I realized is that the first step is we need to be able to understand what our own emotions are. Uh, and, you know, so I actually went to some, uh, when I got divorced, I went through some marriage therapy and uh, the, I remember the counselor asking me, so what emotion are you experiencing right now? And I, I don't know, uh, you know, if anything, it's anger. Um, but she said, you know, anger is not a primary emotion. Usually there's something behind it. Uh, and I couldn't really pinpoint that out. Now, the challenge is, is if I don't know what emotion I'm experiencing, um, then I'm going to be very bad at picking out what emotions uh, my words may elicit in others. So first developing awareness of what my own emotions are. And then that's really the first step towards developing empathy. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, I, I learned French and German. Uh, so when it came to developing empathy, uh, I look for what, what's the language of empathy. And, uh, and, and that was probably the being able to build, um, being able to take empathy and break it down into specific words and language 
of how to build empathy um, was probably one of the greatest breakthroughs for me. And, and that was coincidentally the workshop that I was uh, finding myself across the table from this, uh, uh, this convicted murderer was the uh, a workshop uh, that was teaching people the language of empathy. So, okay, so you're sitting across from a heavily tattooed convicted murderer who just got out of prison after 20 years. What does he have to, you know, what's he going to teach? What's he going to teach us about communication? I mean, you, you talk about a completely different culture that 99.9% .9 of us have never experienced. And I'm sure there's a lot to learn there. What, yeah, so, uh, what did you learn? So, one of the most powerful things that I heard was, uh, so the, this workshop was um, based on a book by a man who's no longer alive uh, named Marshall Rosenberg. Um, and the name of the book is probably the reason why it's actually not a bestseller uh, on any bestseller charts, but it's called Nonviolent Communication, um, which it grows out of, you know, Gandhi and nonviolent protests. So it was written, in the, the, the concepts were originally from the 1960s and 70s. And then they just never changed the name when they published the book. But it's sold millions of copies and been um, uh, translated into like 20 languages. And so one of the most powerful things that hit me and that this person shared was that all communication is just an expression of need. So when someone is saying something to me, it's not that we're listening for what they're saying. We're listening for what they're needing. You know, are they needing approval? Are they needing uh, safety? You know, and so it really puts, you know, imagine a, a leader and, and imagine, uh, well, I even looked at it in my own. Um, if I am a leader who has that line of people outside of my door and I'm answering all of their questions, what is it that I'm needing? Am I needing approval? Am I needing to feel important? Am I needing to feel like I'm the center of attention? So being able to look at people's communication from a different lens of what they're needing was really the fundamental shift that changed this individual's life. And then what they also talk about is the difference between needs and strategies. So I'll take maybe a personal example, but you could say, you know, uh, somebody's spouse could say, I need you to talk to me after work. Um, and so, they, and Marshall Rosenberg would say, that's a strategy. You know, what I need is I need communication or I need to feel understood. Now, a strategy is I need to feel understood from my husband or from my wife. Well, you can, you could get, you could have friends that can help you fill that need. You could have, you know, there are many different strategies that we can use to fill those needs. But the first step is to understand what is the need and then start to think of, you know, how can we brainstorm alternative strategies? So again, this is another example. When I look at a leadership archeologist, I look for things that often transcend just leadership at work um, because this concept of inspiring followership is not just inspiring people at the office to follow me, but it's also inspiring my children, my spouse, people around me to want to follow, and, you know, essentially to, to stick by me uh, for the long term. Yeah, well, that one, you know, that one look can com com can communicate more than a thousand words, right? You know, yeah. The, the one look you give your, your the one look you give your son or daughter communicates a thousand words, or vice versa. The you know the look your wife gives you, um, you know, can speak uh, can speak volumes. What do you, you know, as a, as a leadership archaeologist and in your seminars and in your books, what do you, you know, what's, what's the goals that you're trying to, you know, trying to inspire people to, uh, to grow to? 
I think that this concept of inspiring followership is really kind of core to what I'm after. You know, I write, I write my books and I speak in part for the leaders who are in the audience. Um, but more so than kind of my reason for being is, is I, I write and I speak for the people who may or may not be inspired to follow those leaders. So if a leader walks out of a seminar or reads my book and is able to adopt a new set of concrete behaviors that sends their 10 or 100 or 500 employees home feeling more fulfilled to their families, um, and people tend to adopt the words of their leaders, right? So if those leaders now have new, more positive communication tools that then those people take home to their families, uh, that's, that's really why I do what I do. Um, and then that's, that, that's what I get the most satisfaction out of. So you, you, let's talk the Pareto, you know, the Pareto principle. You know, 80% of the people won't care. 20% will knock it out of the park for you. You know, are, 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 as leaders, are we really leading the, 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 are we just trying to communicate the, the, the best stuff to the top 20% who are really going to care? And, and the 80% happens to, you know, have, you know, whatever happens, happens type of deal? Or how do, you, how do we address that? Or do we? Um, I, I'm a big believer that uh, it's like you've read my book. It hasn't even come out yet. The, one of the things I talk about in the, the chapter about employee engagement is specifically what you just mentioned. Um, focus our efforts on the 20% of the employees that drive 80% of the results. Um, I met Richard Branson on a street corner in Hong Kong uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, he was kind of hurried going to, you know, going off to another meeting. And I said, oh, Richard, I just, I just read your book on my flight from London. And, uh, you know, what's your one most important piece of business advice? Uh, and he kind of was kind of running away. And he said, you know, make sure you take care of your employees because you're, or he said, customers don't come first, employees come first. Take care of your employees and your employees will take care of your customers. And I think the same implies to employee engagement. If you you know, say leaders come first and, you know, employees don't come first, leaders come first, take care of your leaders and they'll take care of your employees. If we want to improve employee engagement and the reason we want to do that is because uh, if I have an engaged workforce, then frankly, I can get more results for less, you know, for every dollar I pay in salary and compensation costs, um, then make sure that my leaders are engaged. And that starts with the CEO. If the CEO doesn't have a leadership team of people who report to him or herself that are engaged, then those people are going to take certain negative behaviors and they're going to just trickle down the organization. Uh, the, the research shows around employee engagement is that 70% of the variance in employee engagement is explained by the behavior of the manager. So the key to employee engagement is build better bosses. If we're better bosses, we're going to have more engaged people. Um, one of my mentors used to say that uh, if you've got a great culture and an engaged, you know, engaged workforce, which I think is just another way of saying a great culture, um, then people will stay at a company uh, for, um, they, they won't leave a company unless they get offered 20% more. And in, generally, we found that we had, you know, our ter employee turnover was a fraction of the industry average. We had one year, we had 99 plus percent employee engagement scores. Uh, and 
fundamentally what that did is it allowed us to attract better talent and keep better talent at lower cost uh, compared to our competitors who didn't have uh, highly engaged workforces. So I'll ask, well, let's talk about one last thing before we, uh, we talk about your next book a little bit. And, um, you know, leadership turnover, there's something to be said about, there's a little bit of importance in that, in that, you know, look, you know, the guy who wants to be the CEO, you know, if you're the CEO and you're not leaving, you know, the guy who wants to be the CEO in your company has got to go somewhere else to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And the flip side, too, if he leaves, it gives you the opportunity to bring in somebody after a couple of years with some new ideas. How much, mm-hmm. turno- how much turnover is healthy? How much turnover should we look for? I mean, it's going to happen. What's healthy? What's unhealthy? Or is there really a – how do you gauge it? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess when – I'm a believer that in the executive team level that, you know, that, that zero turnover is, is the ideal, right? I, and, that, and that assumes not to get to zero turnover. That means uh, I have, one, I've done a good job on the hiring side, so I'm hiring the right people. Uh, and I'm investing in them to make sure they don't get outgrown. Uh, and, you know, some of them may get topped. I may have to bring people in over them, but then they... Um, you know, they go into the middle, middle, middle manager ranks of the organization. I, I had cases while we were growing where I brought people in from the outside and some of our existing leaders had to take a step down. Uh, and then five years later, that leader did move on. And then we promoted people from within back into those positions. So, um, and, and the interesting thing is those individuals who had, they had learned both from the successes and the mistakes of that person who came in from the outside. They were more prepared to be executives of the company than they were when we originally brought the person in from the outside. So I, you know, I, I don't think, well, if, if we're having turnover at the highest levels, it's either because we're not hiring correctly, which is the CEO's job. Right. Uh, or what I found personally is, um, when, when I brought in true executives who are capable of running sw- you know, large swaths of our business, whether it's 50 or 100 people at a time, I had to significantly adapt my leadership style in order to make those people successful. And so the first couple of uh, executives that did kind of, uh, let's say, go out the revolving door, uh, I would say I was personally at least 50% responsible um, in that because I wasn't leading them like executives. Uh, I say that Managers can be managed, but executives can only be led. And when I say executives, there are a lot of people who, you know, want, want or carry vice president titles who I wouldn't necessarily call executives. Mm-hmm. An executive is somebody who can run a team of 50 to 100 people with relatively little supervision from the, from the CEO or whoever their boss is. And, and my experience has been is when I hired, I probably hired maybe three people in my career who would truly meet the definition, my, my definition of executive. And it was, you know, I always thought, well, it's going to take them six months before really I get the benefit. Like every single one of those individuals within three weeks of them starting, like huge chunks of responsibility were taking off, taken off my shoulders. And it was, it was, you know, it came to the point where I knew that uh, at some point I knew when someone was a true, you know, game changing hire because I would look back on it oh, a month after their start date and I would say, wow, this person has just taken on things that I never would have thought right. in my wildest dreams. So the, the answer is make sure people are growing, always growing, and you'll be, you'll be just fine. 
Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I had a you know, you know, it kind of gets back to this coaching thing. I, I was at a, I was at a in the boardroom meeting with the general manager of one of the uh, most successful baseball teams in the last fifty years. Um, obviously, he hasn't been the general manager for the last fifty years, but you know, they have a history. And he said, "We'll hire a free agent for you know whatever two million dollars a year, and then we'll dump an additional two hundred thousand dollars per year in that free agent." And somebody asked, "Like, well, hold on, what are you paying for?" And it kind of connected the dots. Like we as leaders will go and buy a $2 million machine or an aircraft or whatever. I mean, I'm sure your, your people are spending much more on an aircraft and how much do we spend on maintenance for that aircraft? But then we go and we hire an executive for 100 or 200 or $300,000. And we expect that they come completely fully assembled and maintenance free for the next five years. Great you know? point. That, yeah. is a, that is a great, that is a great point. Um, and, and I think that's one that people should really, that's comes back to my coaching, my coaching investment. A lot of companies will hire people and then they, they, they won't invest in, in the, in their future in any way, shape or form. And it becomes a self-defeating, uh, I think it becomes a self-defeating prophecy. Yeah. I think the other, the other point of that is also just making sure that those executives themselves are coachable because there are certainly a lot of executives out there who feel that they're, that, you know, there's no amount of coaching you can invest in because they don't feel that they need it, nor will they change their behavior. So this is an important element. Uncoachable people will, will be forever uncoachable. And, and, and the, the key to a coach is to understand what you got. I think when you, when you take on the, uh, when you take on the, the, the project, is this person going to be coachable or do they know the answers already? And, you know, I guess you figure that out in a couple of sessions. Yeah. Hey, so your hey, your next book, The Leadership Archaeologist: uh, Tools to Unearth Unseen Potential, that comes out when? It should be in February. I keep pushing the the publication date back a couple weeks, but uh, it will be by the end of February. And your website is christopher.simplychristopher.com. Yeah. So actually, uh, there will be a page on the website for your listeners. So Christopher with a K dot com. Christopher with a K dot com slash aerospace. And some of the things that I discussed here, uh, I'll make sure that I have direct links to those, uh, like the free leadership assessment and the talking diet and things like that. Um, as well as if somebody's interested in just signing up for the mailing list for when the book does come out, then I'll, I'll make sure to send a message. Great. And your email address is Krister, K-R-I-S-T-E-R at Krister.com, right? Yep, that's it. Awesome. Hey, I've enjoyed. So let's do this. Let's, let's make a commitment after your next book comes out, come back on. Let's talk about it some more. All right. That it was sounds a great, great topic today. Great. Thanks a lot, Craig, for the invitation. And uh, I look forward to chatting again next year. 